Welcome everyone. This is Elizabeth McGee with co-host Janet Schaefer and Karen Wichard, Assistant County Manager. Today we're interviewing Beth Macy, the award-winning journalist and author of Dope Sick, the book as well as Hulu's 2021 series on the opioid epidemic. Beth recently published a new book entitled Raising Lazarus, which we're going to discuss today. Welcome, Beth and Karen and Janet. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Um, Beth, why don't we start off with an introduction? Will you please introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Beth Macy. I'm a journalist and an author based in Roanoke, Virginia. And um, I have a new book out called Raising Lazarus, Hope, Justice, and the Future of America's Overdose Crisis. It grew out of... Um, some original reporting I did from my previous book, Dope Sick, which is, was about the origins of the opioid crisis and how everybody was falling through the cracks. And so the new book is really, uh, if Dope Sick was about the problem, the new book is about solutions. So speaking about solutions, one thing that I noticed when reading Raising Lazarus is there's a very particular way that you talk about addiction and substance use. And I was wondering if you could just walk us through some of the language you use to talk about addiction in the book. So for example, you explain that addiction at the terms like addict are actually kind of stigmatizing. So why is that? Well, because a person is more, if a person isn't just an addict, uh, that is very stigmatizing. A person is a person with a sub or an opioid use disorder. I, I too used to use quote addict, uh, but people who are farther ahead on this than me have schooled me that it's best to, to use person first language. So I try to use people who use drugs, people with substance use disorders, uh, instead of the word addict. Now, many people with SUDs will refer to themselves as addicts, and that's fine. Uh, and, you know, they can do it however they want. But I think when journalists have been taught, uh, you know, what is the most uh, respected language, we should use it. Some journalists are like, no, I don't, I don't do that. <laughs> and, and whatever. But um, I disagree. These people are so stigmatized that the, the very least we could do is... Um, you know, use respectable language. And when you talk about substance use disorder, we're talking about abuse of opioids. And how are like prescription opioids like Vicodin or Percocet related to or different than heroin and fentanyl? Mm -hmm. They're really not. They're, They're chemical cousins. I mean, I can't give you the chemical, you know, formulas for them, but the whole thing to remember, and this is why I called the last book Dope Sick, people aren't using to get high at the end of their journey. They're using it, quote, to get well, to not feel this horrible, excruciating agony of um, this withdrawal, which has sort of this this outsized uh, fear in their mind of thinking about it. Uh, They don't want to be sick. That is why they are taking these drugs and um, their, their, the, their frontal lobe, if you will, has been sort of hijacked by, um, the, the, it's almost like starvation in their mind of, of this opioid um, and, and they crave it really badly. And that's why 
I put so much emphasis on getting them help uh, by way of life-saving addiction medicines in this book. Yeah, I think that's a good point to make and something that I uh, really um, picked up on in the show, Dope Sick the Show. Um, they did a really good job of, of kind of showing how, um, yeah, it's more about getting better than it is about getting high. Um through those stories. Absolutely. So, yeah. Do you remember the scene of Michael Keaton? He's like hiding his pills from himself behind a cabinet. Like yes. he doesn't want to do them. He wants to get better. And then oh, he yeah. ends up breaking his hand, opening this cabinet because he just can't stand it. Right. And and that was really important uh, for us to show that. And also to show how stigmatized these life-saving medicines still are, you know, even among some recovery groups they it's perceived as taking a drug for your drug addiction and that's bad well no it's like taking a medicine if you had diabetes you would you would take insulin for it and your doctor would want you to do that so that you could live and you might even have to take it for the rest of your life and we know there is there's very uh, recent research showing that in general people aren't on these drugs these these life-saving addiction medicines long enough and um you know it's just like somebody not taking their mental health medicines for long enough or they feel better and they stop and then they have a relapse of depression or anxiety or bipolar what have you um it's the same for these drugs so if we shift our thinking away from thinking about addiction as like a character flaw and move towards thinking of it as more of a disease. What to you, what does that mean in terms of treatment? What works? Well, it means that, um, you know, we have a third, we have an 87% treatment gap, which means that only 13% of folks with OUD have managed to get uh, evidence-based treatment in the last year. I mean, that is an F times an F that is like failure to the nth degree. So, uh, it, and to me, that's the low hanging fruit because every, every scientific body supports the use of this, whether it be the National Institutes of Drug Abuse, the World Health Organization, the CDC. Uh, it's just super clear. And yet, too often, these folks end up in our court systems, uh, which either don't allow the medicines uh, in jail, uh, don't provide any kind of conduit to aftercare, don't, don't provide counseling in jail. Um, and then you, and even drug courts, many drug courts that don't allow MAT because of this whole trading a drug addiction with another drug, um, which is discrimination. It is actually a violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And so we've got to get, just because you're a drug court judge doesn't mean you've done a lot of research on addiction Mm -hmm. we've got to get them to look at the research this is so clear and when we talk about mat there's a lot of acronyms here mat means medically assisted treatment right what what exactly is it so it's buprenorphine brand name suboxone that is a drug that is very regulated doctors have to get a special waiver um training um there's an effort afoot now to x the x waiver it's called so we could maybe even increase the number of doctors who are willing to provide this treatment we only have eight percent of doctors have bothered to get waivered and a lot of them just don't want to do it they don't want those people in their waiting room well guess what like they're there or if they're not 
It's because they've been so stigmatized. They don't even want to attempt coming to your waiting room. And so, you know, I spend a lot of time in North Carolina in this book because, and because I found some people who were really putting humane treatment into into their systems. And I think with the settlement money about to come down, they're, these innovators are really inspiring and um, their work should be copied. There sh- it should be scaled to the scale to match the crisis. So the um, Suboxone, so that's that's the ads that we're seeing. I think sometimes I see uh, signs on the side of the road that say Suboxone treatment, um, call yep. this number. So that's what that's referring to is that medically assisted treatment. Um, yes. Okay. Yes. So that, that's good to know. Yeah. And then methadone is, um, you know, has been around since the Vietnam era. And because um, a lot of Vietnam veterans return with heroin addiction from Vietnam and so methadone is, is you can only get it, you have to go every day to a federally uh, regulated clinic. So Suboxone is thought to be easier because it's outpatient and you just go once a week or, you know, once you've been doing it for a while and aren't having any trouble with it, you can go once a month. It's still expensive to get in many states, you know, especially states like North Carolina that haven't passed a Medicaid expansion. And um, there just aren't enough general practitioners willing to become wavered to provide it. That's why you see ads on the side of the street. There's, there's a paucity of that treatment. Beth, as you have done your work and your research, I'm interested really in two things. First, you mentioned the, the good work that's happening in North Carolina and some of the people. Can you talk a little bit more about what that looks like on the ground here in Gaston yeah. and other counties in our area? Yeah, well, um, I first met Reverend Michelle Mathis. She co-founded the nation's first biracial, queer, uh, faith-based harm reduction coalition. And I had spent time with harm reduction folks elsewhere, visited needle exchanges in cities and things of that nature. And um, a lot of time there's this real, like, kind of almost shrill, like, anger at the police and, and anger at drug war methodology for treating addiction and I have anger about it too but what I liked about Michelle is she said we have to meet both sides where they are so not only is she helping reach people at her needle exchanges that she runs and but she's all or or under bridges and in tent encampments where she's trying to um, get this very marginalized group into some sort of system of care whether that be harm reduction or MAT, but she's also um, meets law enforcement where they are too. And, you know, she has good relationships with the DAs and the prosecutors and um, so that when her folks have criminal charges against them, she can sort of be a good, you know, she also does post overdose outreach in, um, I think it's Gaston County. It's one of the nearby counties where she works. She's in several counties now. So um, she knows how to work within the system, and she knows if you push too hard, that's just going to make people get their back up and not want to do anything. The first time I met her, she was called into Surrey County to advise because they were bringing this volunteer network of people to drive folks to treatment who lived out in the country. And the meeting was hijacked by a civic leader who said, I think when they overdose, we should let them die and take their organs. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Wow. And, and and Michelle, you know, stood up 
and oh, so, you know, y'all, do you know that song? They will know we're Christians by our love. Right. I'm not feeling their love. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah. Yeah. She just has a real like on a grandmotherly way. She's, she's non-threatening. Right. She's not going to just like run at the sheriff with a, a sword. She's going to like try to have a conversation with people. And what's. What's the common ground? I mean, that's what we have to do in this nation with all of our issues. We have to start to try to find common ground. And this is Michelle Mathis with Olive Branch Ministries. Yeah, yeah. ministry. And yeah. she is, Karen, you may know this, does Olive Branch work with Gaston, Lincoln? Yes, and she actually works part-time with Gems on the post-overdose. Oh, cool. um, The county funds a piece of that work. Okay. Um, and with opioid money, we'll probably look to expand some of that. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. Beth, Gems I've is... been all over the nation, and I've never met a person who knows more about addiction yeah. and how to treat people than Michelle Mathis. That's awesome, and we have that resource right here in our community, yes, which is great. Um. And Jim, we said Jim's earlier. We I forget a lot of times that we we call our um, emergency medical services Jim's because it's gas and a medical medical emergency medical services. So <laughs> you'll hear us say Jim's probably quite often. Okay, can't get away from those acronyms. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so talking about how Michelle is really good at building bridges and um, basically talking to everyone about addiction, I wanted to ask you. So. Just some numbers here. In Gaston County, um, 17 out of 100 people were prescribed opioids in 2020, um, which this this is coming from the um, North Carolina Opioid Settlement website where they've got kind of a data dashboard. And it's really mm-hmm. useful because it compares all the counties in North Carolina to each other on these different performance and how does that rate yeah so it's it's a little above average it's a the north carolina average is 14 out of every 100 people in 2020 which is still it's staggering but i might yeah but i bet you 10 years ago it was way higher yeah because that was when people were prescribing more now what you have is illicit use because when people stopped being prescribed unless they had treatment they still had the fear of dope sickness foremost in their minds. And so they're going to, people are resourceful. They don't want to starve. Mm-hmm. They're going to go out and find it one way or another. So I also have our illicit drug overdose numbers from 2020. The North Carolina average for overdose from illicit drug use was 76 out of 100. And in Gaston County, it was 78 out of 100 overdose deaths. Um, and if you, th- there's a little line chart on this dashboard that I'm looking at. And basically, right around 2011, it just spikes straight up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, um, right, ar- right around the time the pills got harder to get. So it's just like we should have known <laughs> that uh, that was going to happen. Yeah. And until we make the treatments easier to access than the dope, mm-hmm. it's going to keep going up. It's not just... It's not just interdiction that's going to fix this. It's not because the demand that outsized fear of your brain being starved of this opioid that it now has to have or you'll be very, very, very sick. um, That's what we need to deal with. We need to quell those starving opioid receptors Mm -hmm. and um, we need to fix that treatment gap. So 
part of my point in bringing up this data is because I want to ask you, because you've really been out in the field, on the ground, talking to people who are doing this work and talking to people who struggle with substance use disorder. How do you have conversations with people about addiction, whether you suspect that they're using or maybe you notice a problem in yourself even? How do you begin to bring this up in a way that's going to make recovery an option and not ostracize them? Because the odds odds are that you might know someone who's having an issue. One third of American families have suffered, not just known somebody, but have suffered severe strife because of the opioid, the overdose crisis. So, I mean, the, are you asking how do I approach people when I'm going to interview them? Or I or guess what, yeah, either way, um, your advice to someone or how do you, let, let's say, how do you approach it? Well, um, this book, I chose to write about the helpers. You know, Mr. Rogers says, when you're scared, find the helpers. I was pretty scared. I was pretty devastated after Dopeset came out and I was just, just depressed about how bad it was for so many people, many of whom initially were addicted through no fault of their own Mm -hmm. because of these companies and the lack of regulation and that allowed these greedy companies to, you know, foist this upon our country and hurting the most marginalized people among us and then blaming them for their own addictions. That yeah. really ticks me off, Richard Sackler. Um, so, <laughs> so my MO with this book was to, to highlight the helpers. So first I have them to trust me, right? So I can say, well, I've done this. Um, I, I tend to go with what moves me. I heard Michelle at a panel once and I heard her, as I said earlier, she was the first person to say, we have to meet both sides. And I thought, absolutely we have to meet both sides in it because because the cops are always going to win in any kind of debate they have the power the sheriffs have the power unless we convince them that this drug war first uh, incarceration first is wrong i mean they know it's wrong because they see the same people cycle in and out in and out but it's all they've been told to do and so that we have to educate the population who's voting in these folks, that there are innovative solutions, even among law enforcement. You know, I spent a lot of time in Fairfax County, Virginia, and, um, you know, which is just outside of D.C. They had a, a, a woman sheriff named Stacy Kincaid, longtime sheriff, who invited um, a harm reduction group, not unlike Michelle's group. This one was called Christopher Atwood Foundation. And they brought their peers into the jail. Now, all the peers are felons. They're Mm -hmm. people in recovery with felony charges. They come in the jail. They get to know the folks. All the people get screened for addiction. They all get access to Medicaid-assisted treatment if they want it. Um, And then they work with the peers to come up with a plan for when they're released. And the peers pick them up at the moment they're released. When they're released, they have Narcan. They have a prescription for bup and a way to get it, buprenorphine, the MAT. Um, and and then they have this person that they can call night or day, anytime, to help them navigate this really tricky, scary world. I talk about Surrey County a lot because I embedded with Surrey for a couple of years for this book. They had 500 job openings that they couldn't fill because people couldn't pass drug tests. At one point, it went up every time I would go back or call uh 
you know, do another interview, there was a couple more hundred job openings. It got up as high as 1,800 about six months ago. Um, And now, because of the efforts of um, some really cool people who are working on the problem there, uh, you know, uh, Mark Willis is their opioid response director. And, you know, he was hitting barriers right and left. He's a former Marine. The Marine Corps motto is improvise, overcome, adapt. And yeah. so when he couldn't get this volunteer transportation network up and running, he got a Bureau of Justice to grant. And so he has five drivers out every day now carrying people to treatment. Anytime anyone overdoses, they get a visit from his post-overdose response team where a peer will meet a person in the hospital, go to their home. And now he just got a grant where the EMS can start people on uh, temporary buprenorphine and then refer them uh, to treatment from there. So they have come so far. That's great. From where they were two years ago. Yeah. Karen, do you, do we have anything similar to that in Gaston? We did just get a grant to do a similar program here in Gaston. It adds a community paramedic and the MAT treatment, um, which is very exciting. So we'll have two community paramedics. Ideally, where we'd like to get to is five. So we have one 24-7 at all times to cover the need in the community. Uh, um, but it is really nice to see from an evolution of this issue that some of the funding options are coming to help us use some of those resources. It sounds like they're doing the same in Surrey County to meet the need on the ground. Great. Yeah, that's amazing. So so my fear and um, is that this money will come down and it'll just go to the same old, same old, which the same old, same old is not working. Right. Um, meaning, meaning like so, the war on drugs, jail. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Abstinence, space, treatment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was, I was in Surrey. I was in Mount Airy. Um, brand new needle exchange program operating there, and they took me to a, a a trap house, a place where people were selling and using drugs. And actually, they were handing out clean needles there, so they were trying to make their community safer, right? And the woman running the trap house, her name is Billy Campbell. She just let me come in. I talked to whoever I wanted to talk to. You know, I was a little nervous about it. I'd never been in a trap house before. And as we left, I was with this harm reduction worker, and he goes, filling up his car at the gas station, he goes, did you notice how miserable they are? And um, I'm like, yeah. And a couple weeks later, Billy gave me her number, said I could stay in touch. I was really thinking I was reporting on on the needle exchange. And um, she got arrested, bringing heroin back from Winston. Oh. She'd been re- arrested oh, probably 20 times, been in and out of prison and jail her whole adult life since her 20s, and she's in her 40s now. And at the jail, they were booking her, and the officer said, Billy, what the hell are we going to do with you? And she goes, why don't you get me some treatment? Previous to that, every time they arrested her, they would try to turn her into a confidential informant to squeal on her dealers, you know? Uh, Yeah. And so they, because of the efforts of this harm reduction group in, uh, called Birches in Surrey County, uh, they had started meeting, they had started taking various detectives in the county out to lunch and said, hey, what about we divert some of these people from jail and into treatment? And, but they didn't start with that question. They started with, how could we help you? And the cops actually had the need for people in recovery to come in and tell their stories at the schools. 
So they did that. They saw that these folks were really trying. And um, then when Billy gets arrested, I mean, it just happened that there was somebody I had been following. Um, they actually send Billy to treatment. And one of Mark's peers goes and picks her up from jail and takes her to a rehab. She's now sober 15 months. Wow, I mean, it's a fantastic. miracle. This is the first time she's been sober uh, since she was 14 years old. Wow. And, um, and she just signed up to become a peer. She's going to take the class in November. And, and I'm just so proud of her. I mean, yeah. it's not easy. And, you know, this is somebody who grew up with a lot of trauma. And, you know, she, she started to work on that to work on that she has a job now she has a relationship with some members of her family and i think we give up on this population who would have thought a woman running a trap house 15 months be on the cusp of becoming a leader in her recovery community yeah that's that's great because i mean you you really don't see a lot of success stories so i guess it is important to highlight those success stories um where they can occur it's so important because it is a treatable medical condition. Right. But if we don't have any hope, then we don't have any programming that allows these people to access treatment. Right. right? Yeah. We just write them off. Right. And we're consigning them to death or prison. Yeah. Beth, I have a question. Speaking of shifting mindsets and new approaches, you I think DOTSIT came out sometime around 2018. And obviously, you've been covering this for some time prior what have you seen change for the better and then for the worse in approaches to this issue in the communities that you've done research in? Yeah, well, when DOPSEC first came out, like, needle exchange was just barely legal in Virginia. And, and when it was as I was putting the book to bed, it wasn't legal yet. Then when they, they shifted the law, um, saying it was legal, but you had to have the police and the city council sign off. And we had a police chief here in Roanoke, where I live, that that just absolutely wasn't going to let it happen because he didn't, he hadn't bothered to read the research, saying the research is so clear that people who visit needle exchanges are five times more likely to enter treatment, three times more likely to stop using drugs altogether. I mean, that's the only way we're going to reach these people because of again, dope sick rules everything, the fear of dope sick. So you've got to have the needle exchange or the harm reduction approach as a gateway to treatment, the MAT as a gateway to full recovery. Um, But if you don't bother to learn that, then you're just going to say, oh, they're moral failures. They're bad people. Let's put them in jail. But so that law eventually got changed. The police police chief, he said, well, if we open a needle exchange, we might as well just give out marijuana cigarettes on the elementary school playground. I mean, we don't have enough time to talk about how ridiculous that <laughs> statement is. And, um, but we have a needle exchange now. And, and when I go there, the first time I go there, I see, like, I see humanity. I see people helping people get signed up for Medicaid, people helping people access food and computers to apply for jobs, getting wound care kits, getting clean needles, getting clothes, getting help with housing. And, um, you know, this still sort of treated like a second class institution, this needle exchange. They eventually got kicked out of their building because of needle litter. Now, because they went to a local TV station, got a, th- you know, 
60-second story, and then they got bumped out. Now they're operating out of a van, which is fine, but, like, they should have just called the needle exchange and said, hey, send some volunteers out to pick right. up needles. Right. Like, let's just, like, don't just throw out the baby with the bathwater. But anyways, I've seen needle exchanges. I mean, I really think it, it, it is sort of a carrot that builds a little bit of trust. And when you have that, then you have people like, okay, somebody cares about me. You know, I have hepatitis C. I don't feel very good. Oh, get me tested for my hepatitis C. Oh, I've gotten cured for my hepatitis. It, how about getting me on buprenorphine? Uh, I think I would do really good on that. I've never had access to that from a doctor. Have you seen a shift considering, I think you mentioned that it affects one in three families now. Have you seen a shift in people, um, their mindset about these uh, programs or? Um... Yes, but it's not fast enough. And I tell you who really should be leading the charge is doctors. Um, 8% of them have bothered to become part of the solution. They've all benefited from the problem. They all participated in the problem. And I'll, t- I'll t- I say that to doctors all the time. I say, I don't care if you never took a free trip to Florida or Arizona on the wallet of Purdue Pharma. You, you participated in the system that, you know, we now have more than 7 million people in the country with that has opioid use disorder, you need to participate in the system to get them better. Right. And we are still putting out new doctors that have been to medical school. They have maybe an hour of treatment about uh, of training on addiction. I have some good friends who just graduated Harvard Med and then did the residency two weeks ago. They did a nine-hour board exam uh, for licensure. There was one question about addiction on that whole nine hour exam. And taxpayers are funding this grad, graduate medical education, right. uh, millions of dollars every year. That's our taxpayer money that is supporting creation of new doctors who can't identify or treat a disease that took the lives of 108,000 people. The number one killer of you know young people, young adults is, is is overdose right so why is that why are we allowing that um and so i you know i think we could need more leadership governors hold the powers of the purse they should be requiring um medical schools that get state funding and federal funding to uh make sure that it's really treated people doctors need to know more more how to treat pain and addiction are there any particular red flags that could signal that someone is maybe using? Behavior changes, you know, stealing, missing family events, you know, just right. radical changes, shifts in behavior. Uh-huh. Uh, there's still so much stigma and shame around this that people don't want to admit they have a problem. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it's a tell that's hard to hide once you're deep into it. And so... If you were going to give advice to someone who is listening to your list of red flags and thinking, I might know someone, what's your advice to them for how to approach it? Should you approach it? And and is there a way to do it gently? Well, there's a lot of people that are, that know more about this than me. But, you know, I always go back to what Michelle would say, let's have a conversation about this. Why, why, why is the behavior changing? And just this idea of, you know, kind of, acceptance and and shifting the notion that 
you're a bad person to you may have a medical problem and what can we do to help you with this how can we get you treatment how can we get you help it's more than mat it's also help with housing and social support the population i'm mainly talking about in the new book is are people who have lost their housing they have lost their jobs they have lost relationships with their family they are totally without any kind of wraparound service how do you coax them back in to a service because 40 percent of the largest group of people and that's 40 percent of people with oud think they can't get better think they don't want to stop using drugs and that's largely because they've been stigmatized anytime they have tried to seek help or they haven't been able to access help because they don't have money to go um to the doctor or or and that's why places that sort of bridge that, that are these sort of low barrier bridges to care, i.e., you know, a harm reduction group, a needle exchange, that's why they're so efficient because they are low threshold, high touch, low tech. I mean, Google is not going to fix this problem. It's got to be people helping people. Right. Beth, I have a question related to impacts um, in our community in particular. We are particularly struggling and overwhelmed with the number of children in foster care as a result of parents who have substance use disorder issues. Mm-hmm. Have you mm-hmm. seen that in communities? I think it's um, a growing state issue in North Carolina. Any thoughts on that? Because there, we're really candidly at a crisis stage in a lot of ways from that standpoint in our community. Yeah. And I worry about the impacts of trauma on the kids in our custody now and what that looks like in 10 years? Oh, I do too. I mean, it's just through the roof. Um, you know, um, Huntington, West Virginia, which was kind of the epicenter of the crisis back in, was it 2016? They had 26 overdoses in 12 hours in that city. And they have really embraced um, a recovery model in, in every aspect. And they did it because they had a, a city uh, a city manager or a mayor, I forget what was his title. Um, the, everybody checked their egos at the door. The fire chief got really involved, who was in charge of the EMS. The Marshall College, the university there, said every person who works at this university, I don't care if it's the provost to the janitor, is going to work on this issue and you know they really galvanized around this issue and they now have uh recovery first um uh, programming in all of the schools so that if a kid is having a bad day no questions asked they can they can check themselves out of class and go and talk to somebody and i think we have to start have that having that recovery first and i can if you want to you know, have a contact there. I can look that up. I have it in my notes. I mean, I thought that was a really cool thing. And before COVID, they were actually bringing their overdoses down. Mm-hmm. Every Everybody's kind of went went um, back up during COVID. And I, I think they're starting to come down a little bit now in some places. But um, there's this program that I wrote about in Batesville, Indiana, where they just wrap services around people coming out of jail who had OUD, got them on bup, got them in like intensive outpatient, got them help with their jobs, had that had the IOP sessions at night so people could still work during the day. I mean, 
you know, a lot of these programs get designed with like people use drugs from eight to five. No, that's <laughs> not the way it works. But really help them with housing and food, and they were all they all experienced food insecurity, and just just made all these connections. There, are, a lot of places have services. They just don't talk to each other, and there's no glue in between. And so this young woman who worked at the the local nonprofit hospital, working with the probation and the courts, they wrapped service ar- around the people getting out of jail, and um. You know, they had zero overdose deaths the first 18 months of the program. Wow. Zero. That was before COVID. They had Mm -hmm. a few after COVID. But uh, then they started wrapping the same sorts of services around children who were at risk, who had uh, addicted parents. And so, uh, and what they quickly found out was, I remember interviewing the pediatrician who was running the program. He said, I had no training at all in how to deal with this traumatized group. And he just sort of looked stricken, like he was still processing what he was hearing from the kids every day. Mm-hmm. And so then they started wrapping the same kinds of ser- services around the kids. They even had a yoga program. Uh, as the woman running it told me, she's a counselor, she goes, the issues live in the tissues, you know. And, um, you know, just really looking at what's the best evidence for helping these kids. Mm-hmm. But we have to be out there looking for it. So we have, everybody has to be doing it. it has to be the principals and the superintendents and, and the guidance counselors. And, you know, we meet, we need more funding for child psychologists and psychiatrists and what you're right. It's, it's, it's absolutely a huge issue and it's just going to get worse. Well, thank you. That was really great information. Do either, do either of you have any questions or Beth, do you have any questions for us or, um, Anything else you want to talk about? Yeah. <laughs> For to, to the people of Gaston County? No, I just hope that when this money does start to come down, I know it, some of the distributor money already has come down. I hope it'll go first to places like Olive Branch Ministry that it, it has proved themselves going back to 2009 that they know how to reach this hard to reach population and that people trust them. And you're not going to envelop these people in, and you're not going to get them to, um, participate by forcing them you're going to get them to participate by um using this harm reduction approach and i think what michelle has done and particularly like with the low barrier where they go out you know she has a nurse practitioner who meets people at a mcdonald's parking lot next to a dumpster and gets them started on treatment you know and says um you can get better and they've never heard that you can get better and don't disappear. I want you to come back, even if you relapse. Still come back. Right. That's something I kept hearing in um, the in Dope Sick in the show. Also, is don't disappear. Don't disappear. So is that kind of a red flag? Also, that someone like you said, they may not be showing up to family events or whatever when people start disappearing from programs is is a red flag. Yeah, absolutely. And and just that. I mean, just repeating that addiction is a chronic relapsing disease. If you just because you relapse, I mean, it would, the same would be true if you were a diabetic and you went out and had a big old piece of cake. Um, right. That doesn't mean you're a bad person who should never take insulin again. Right. You should go to jail. You <laughs> yeah. had a piece of cake. That's I mean, a good just way to try to think of it that way every time, you know, they made a mistake uh, because their brain right. and chemistry has been changed by this drug. 
right. uh, we should expect that that might happen. Yeah. Of course, we hope it doesn't, but it, but it probably will. Mm-hmm. And then how do we re-engage them? And I think that the harm reductionists really uh, know the answers about how to do that. And so I think we sh- they should be involved in the decisions about how this money is spent and because they're working at the ragged edge of capacity. I mean, Michelle's peers, like they, they work so hard and the peer, the peer peers are just these rowdy little angels driving all around, <laughs> like frantically yeah. helping people. Um, and, uh, you know, we need more of them. Mm-hmm. That's a great term for it. Rowdy little angels. I like that. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, this has been very helpful, um, especially we're, we're all um, on Karen's committee um, with. To, oh, amazing. Yeah. So this has been really helpful and hopefully we can get everyone to listen to this podcast. But more importantly, I do think that Dopesick is a really great um, representation of of this problem and, and how to navigate it no matter where you are. And it, it does show a good yeah. it shows how someone with every privilege in the world can fall into the same path. So. Um, and so many solutions in raising Lazarus. Yes, yes. and then raising Lazarus, Ra- Lazarus. Actually, I listened to to it on my way to Syracuse, and it was just so fascinating. I finished it in one one drive, so that was that was fun. Wow! <laughs> oh, I told Thank Janet you. this yesterday. I've been buying copies and just handing it out to people in our community. I'm like, you need to read this book. It's really important. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Thank you. So we appreciate. I'm really proud of it. I think it's my best one. I I just. You know, it was hard to kind of like running all over the place, trying to figure out what works and then trying to celebrate these people in hopes that other people will try to Mm -hmm. do what they're doing. You know, we're big fans. People aren't ready to hear the message yet. And so we have to figure out ways to convince them, whether it's, you know, if it's a judge, find another judge that's already figured it out and have him convince them, you know, or her convince them. That's why I love your raising Lazarus kind of metaphor for this situation where you're going to get your hands dirty a little bit when you're helping people who need help. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It might not smell good, (laughs) but, but, but then you get to experience the miracle and that's, that's something. And I felt like I got to, see these miracles happening all over the place and that's why people say wasn't it dark i'm like no it was actually wasn't easy wasn't always successful there were relapses yeah. <laughs> within the relapses but um there are little miracles happening all the time and we could make them happen more often if we had the will as a country yeah. to do that yes so okay. i'll be speaking in gaston real soon so i hope to maybe meet you guys in person yeah yes. i'll be there we're very excited about it. i've also sent the event right to everybody and said you have to come <laughs> <laughs> this is right. important and you, so. yeah and you're taking attendance and they're gonna <laughs> they don't show <laughs> well thank you thank you beth it was such an honor to speak to you and and uh you're doing yeah. some amazing stuff so thank you we appreciate it as a community who oh. is directly impacted by this this is very valuable to yeah. us so I, thank you so much oh, i will say that bless your hearts this community, I think you can't find anyone who hasn't been directly impacted in some way. And I feel like raising Lazarus is a, a solution that um, our community needs to hear and see. So thank you. Oh, thank, thank you so much for saying that. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Okay, Bye. Bye. Bye.